Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Bradley Wiggins Show by Eurosport in association with LACA. Bicycle insurance powered by the community. Welcome to the Bradley Wiggins Show from Eurosport, the home of cycling. I'm Graham Wagos, and joining me, I'm delighted to say, is two-time Paris-Roubaix winner, Sean Kelly. Welcome, Sean. Hello. And, of course, uh, the man who finished ninth in the 2014 edition, Bradley Wiggins. Hi. Uh, we've made some calculations. We've found the budget for a third guest. I'm very happy to say we've got, this week, we've got the bonification of Matt Stevens. Yes. He's already on the cheap, run it? Matt, welcome back. We had such a good time with you last time. Thanks uh, very much. We're, we're delighted like to have you back. detention at Eurosport for a little bit. I could have been home a while ago, but now I'm here. But that's no, great. It's great to be back. Well, yes, we've, we've kept you both behind after Paris-Roubaix. Um, you've done a monster shift, both of you, today, actually. Sean was in for 10am for this morning. We will come to that, the uh, the game of stones. But before we do, uh, I want to just touch on another story as, as old as time, if you will, um, or it certainly feels like it at, at this point. Brad, straight in with the, the headlines. Chris Froome has said this week uh, that he struggled to trust you in the 2012 Tour de France after racing the uh, the Vuelta with you. So he's been on Nico Rosberg's podcast, yeah. the, the, the former Mercedes driver, obviously. Clearly what they've tried to do is draw a comparison between Rosberg and Hamilton at Mercedes and yourself and, and Froome mm. at Sky and how uh, team orders one man yeah, eventually yeah. in team sport has to be subservient to the other so Froome said the difficult part for me was trusting him as the leader so him being you Brad given that in Sir the Bradley, in, yeah. in, yep, Sir Bradley sorry yeah. <laughs> in the last big race we weren't Sir at the time the Vuelta Espana I'd gone there to support him and he fell apart in the last few days going into the Tour de France I had this in my mind I was thinking I'm doing a job for this guy but if he falls apart in the last few yeah. days I need to be in the position to take over again I wish you'd have told me but <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean that, that. I mean, you know, that's Chris's opinion. As I said, I spoke last few weeks about here. You know, that's the world we're all in. Maybe I wasn't the best communicator at the time. The year I had a bad couple of days towards the end of the Walter, I broke a collarbone six weeks earlier. I still had a plate in. I couldn't really get out of the saddle properly. I didn't expect to be in that position. And to be honest, I think if Chris is being honest, well, he didn't expect to be. He couldn't scratch his ass before that point and found himself second <laughs> in the Walter with a week to go. And at the start of the race, Dave's coming to me saying, I don't think we're going to sign him next year. What do you think, Brad? And I said, well, he's proved himself here in the Team Time Trust. I think you should keep him. You know, we know he's got an engine mm. and here he is now. So I think, you know, that's the way teams work it's all a bit incestuous and, and no one really communicates I'll be the first to admit I wasn't the best team leader in the world so communication wasn't my strong point and um, we found ourselves second and third going into the last couple of days mm. of the Walter Espana and it was his you know the point for him that leaped his career forward really and gave him the confidence to do what he did but I mean as I say you know I'm not going to sit here and slag him off because you know I think he's a great athlete and this that and the other but that's the world you're in at that time and mm. you know I take responsibility for it as well but it is what it is. Given that that 2012 tour was so time trial heavy and it was a course mm. absolutely suited to you which is obviously a, a huge reason why Sky made you the main man for that yeah. tour. Is he being a little bit unfair you know given that you were so dominant in the TTs? Well that year I hadn't lost a race either. Yeah. I did win Paris-Nice, Romandie, 
Dauphiné. I hadn't lost a time trial all year. And I was leading the Tour by three minutes going into the last couple of days with a 55-kilometre time trial. There was no signs I was going to crack. I hadn't cracked all year. I didn't have a broken collarbone. and I was So, you know, maybe, yeah, I mean, I don't want to get myself in too much trouble because you know what the media are like. But, um, yeah, that, that, that was it, really. I did win. Tonight. It's all lifts and butts, isn't it? But um, he's gone on to win four since and could potentially win five this year. So, Matt, what's your take on this one? I think it's a matter of semantics, just how your interpretation of the word trust. Mm. It's trust in, is he talking about trust in Brad in terms of his doing things behind his back or not telling him about his condition, or is it just didn't trust Brad that he could hold out physically, which is a completely different kettle of fish. If you don't trust somebody because you think they're going to lie and deceive you, then it's very, very different than actually trusting somebody not, you know, I, I don't trust it, I don't think, you know, you capitulated at the end of the Vuelta, that's what he said. Mm. You know, it's the matter of what, what does he mean by trust? I think if he means trust as in terms of not trusting Bradley as a person, as a point of view, it could be that he didn't trust trust him last night in a grand tour. And I suppose, I, I guess I see, I see yeah, his point, I mean, but I guess it's just the interpretation yeah. of trust, yeah, I mean, really. But as, Again, we were both in that kitchen of kind of both extremely competitive, both wanting to win. He, you know, he was fighting for his life for a contract at that time. Yeah. I think at the time he had one option on the table because we were rooming together, and he was it was talking about going to Garmin, Cannondale, Chipotle, whatever they were at the time. And um, in the end, he got second, and Dave signed him up and, and saw him, you know, as his cash cow for the next few years. But this is the nature of athletes at that level. We're all a bit insecure and always looking over each other's backs and things. Mm. And you know, that environment was sort of created a little bit of sky as well. The competitiveness. There from Dave, and almost still is really, and it works somehow. That it somehow works by playing all these big stars off against each other. Uh, and there is an element of trust between riders, and there has to be. But I, I wouldn't say they'd bet their houses on it. You know, like we were watching the Roubaix running today, Chat and we were talking it, about yeah. Gilbert. Does he keep it running, or does he wait for Eve's Land mm. Park, which is my chance to win Roubaix? You know, so there is that sort of insecurity at sport at that level particularly in cycling and it's all this big happy family till there's a race on the line and you know but that's Chris's opinion I mean you know it is what it is I don't claim to be the same person I am now that I was sat mm. in the Vuelta you know I was a bit of a as I said the last few weeks you know I have to be a bit of a c- I was a bit of a c- then that's why I won the tour but you know I completely detached from that person now and I don't recognize any of myself mm. as I am now but that's his opinion it might be an insecure opinion it might not you know but that's the way he feels and potentially that might be why he's made such a good career since. Sean, you have in a similar situation? Audrey van der Poel, dear. <laughs> you remember that one? <laughs> yes, well, there was a number of times. Um, well, you know, in cycling, it's difficult to trust somebody when you're in a team and you're fighting for the same objective, the same win. And, you know, on a bike, you're going uphill, you're going downhill. You know, you can always say, well, I thought you were there, I thought you were following me, I didn't think you were getting dropped, there's all of that to it. So it's, uh, uh, it's difficult to trust anybody. And I know from my time in, in my career of cycling, yes, it's, uh, you always have to uh, be careful trusting riders. When it comes to the very important moment and that opportunity, that win is there to take, and it's between your know, two riders of the same team, I think uh, you can never trust somebody 100%. Mm. Yeah, but if you also watch at the Tour last year, it was only at the 11th knock-ins. Froome was still trying yeah. to win that race yeah. in the Tour of France, yeah. you know. And there's an element of him thinking, well, I've won the Tour four times. You know, Is Geraint going to last up this last mountain, or are we going to see... So, and, and I think Geraint said it in his book, didn't he, that in some of the meetings he was like, what the hell's going on here, you know? Are we not? Are we riding for me or are we riding for Chris? You know what's going on. So even at that level at Sky, with all the happiness that's projected from that team, there's still this insecurity where yeah. G's writing in a book further down the line that I wasn't sure what was going on. You know, it's that kind of. But that's what it's like cycling. Everyone wants to win. It's that competitive environment. Talking of a competitive environment, then today's big race, the biggest one-day race of the season, Paris Roubaix. We've assembled our own Parve Appreciation Society, 257 
kilometres of road covered, 29 cobbled sections, uh, 55 kilometres of parve in total. It was a real strongman finish from Philippe Gilbert and Niels Pollitt the two men who came into the velodrome first going for the win. It was Gilbert who had the power in the end to, to take Pollitt in the sprint. The first Belgian to win a cobbled race all season. This is how it went. Here goes Gilbert! Gilbert's driving for five! He's out, he has the gap! But can Pollitt come around him? Gilbert looking to the finish! Gilbert's going to do it! It's fantastic! Philippe Gilbert! Five-star Phil does it! And the Koenig Quickstep are winners of Paris-Roubert again! Brad, it's a horrible race to ride but it's, it's the one everyone wants to win. It isn't, it isn't. I don't say it's a horrible race to ride. I mm. used to love riding it. Um, the only risk in it is the, is the amount of crashes, the amount of jostling you have to do for every sector right from the start. You know, it's like a bunch, it's like the last 10, 15k of a bunch sprint into every sector. So from that point, it's it, you're always concentrating. So it doesn't feel horrible at the time because you're so focused on what you're doing. Mm. Other races I found a lot more horrible, like Liège and things like that, where every left, right, and Amstel Gold is an uphill or something like that. Roubaix was a dream to ride. It was a beautiful race. And the six, seven hours you're out there, it goes so quick once you get through the first sector you know that 150k from the first sector to the finish before you know it it's all done and dusted i actually one of the most enjoyable races there's always the risk you'll crash and really hurt yourself if you do mm. but it's a great race to ride and obviously sean you've won it twice you could tell how many times did you ride it about nine times in total oh, that's good going yeah it was the race that you you can but perform. i never rode it in the wet that was tough i think that changes the highest well it does it. change a lot but still you know it's a race that if you if you have the qualities to win it well then you know it's something that it's a big objective for you but for me it was never a nice race to ride and i was never looking forward to it you know the days before uh, although you know some of the years i was the uh, one of the big favorites the other races like Liège, i would prefer and i wasn't great at climbing i always struggled a bit but mm. it's more of a a clean race Liège, two of lombardy if you're good you just sit there, you follow, and it's elimination through the back door. But in the Paris-Roubaix, you know, there's so much going on, as Brad said, you know, the crashes. And you can be so good, and in the end, you know, you can be in a great position 20, 25 kilometres out, a mechanic at the wrong time. You know, it can just take you out of the equation, take you out of, you know, um, the chance of winning it. So all of that is that pressure there, that just thinking about that, but also the crashes and, you know, all that goes on and the fighting that goes on. You know, you have to fight to get onto the fourth section of cobbles. You get rid of a lot of the big Belgians. Then they come back on the asphalt road. You have to fight on the second section, the third section, the fourth section. And you have, if you have dry conditions, you have to do that so many times. You know, and it is, it is a very stressful race. So for me, it wasn't one of the races that I like. But of course, yes, if you feel you can win it, well, then you have to get in there and you have to, you know, fight it with them. It's quite an emotional day today, Matt. Yeah, I mean, as, as ever, really. Yeah, I mean, I, my, my pro tenure was quite a short one and I, I've never ridden that race, but it doesn't mean I can't be equally in love with it. You know, as, as, a, as, a, as a kid growing up, um, my dad introduced me to cycling and it is one of the races, um, the single day races, along with the World Championships, that has, you know, an incredible degree of emotion to it. And, and as Gilbert crossed the line and put his arms up, you, you could see it in his face. It was, you know, that, that classic win number five. He's never won Roubaix before, of course. And then the moment when, he, when Lefebvre was just... It was like Gilbert for a moment was his son. He held him quite tenderly. And, <laughs> and, and Lefebvre is, is an old school, you know, I don't agree with everything Lefebvre says, but there was a real kindness. Mm. And, and Gilbert is towards... He's in the autumn of his career, but he rode, you know, the, one of the races of his life today, he rode it smart and he, and he was strong as well. And it all fell in place. And because of all that, because of his age and because he's been striving for this fifth monument win, and, it's the, and for the first time it's Paris-Roubaix, and, of course, the added pressure that no Belgian had won a cobbled race this year at mm. all, 
the pressure on him was immense. So all those factors contribute and make it so, so beautiful. I've never ridden it, but I kind of kind of ride it in a different way as a commentator trying to get those stories across. It's amazing. It's, it's a privilege. Phil, you know, it's towards privilege. the end of BMC, was kind of almost at an end of his career, really. Mm. I think he'd sort of run out of motivation. And Patrick, in some ways, almost resurrected his career. Yeah, yeah. He's won the two biggest races of his career in the Tour of Flanders and Roubaix towards the back end of his career. Well, he made him hungry again, I think, because he, he had quite a modest contract, and it was a win-based contract. And that first year yeah. at, at Quickstep, he, he couldn't stop winning, could he? No. You know, and, it, and he's kept that kind of hunger, and that's clearly what Lefebvre does on a relatively limited budget when you compare it to some of the big-hitting, uh, in, in a big-money corporate uh, well, world tour teams. I'm not sure if it's all about money, because Philip Gilbert, the position he's in at the moment financially... That's not what makes him hungry. That's what, not, not what drives him. It's just the environment in the team, yeah. you know, all of that, the way they work within the uh, Ducone Quickstep. And they seem to be able to, you know, motivate each other within the team, I suppose, all that personnel. They work so well together. And then the riders, there's the morale there and the camaraderie between the riders is great. And I think that's what is... Yeah, and the likes of Brian Holm as well, don't they? Have to yes, take the director sport. Wilfred Peters, course, they you know, play, yeah, they, they play a very big part and... You know, if you've got that, you know, then you get uh, you get motivated, and you know, you, you set these targets, and that's what Philip Gilbert have done, setting the target to win a Roubaix. And last year, when he won the Tour of Flanders, I said, well, you know, if he can't hold the form, he definitely can win a Roubaix because if you win a Flanders like he did last year, he's capable of winning a Roubaix, and you could see that, you know, so emotional, and that is Roubaix. You know, even though you've won so many monuments, you know, world championship, like when you win the big ones, you're a grown-up person, you're plus thirty years of age. But you're like a child when you win those when you win those events. Like you get so emotional, and I was pretty much written off at the end of my career, and I managed to win a Milan San Remo. Four in the top ten for De Kerning today. So Lampere filling out the podium, and then Florian Senechal in sixth, and uh, Stebar coming in in eighth. Mm. I mean, it's a race that you really felt like De Kerning went full gas for today. I mean, they've they've been dominant in in the one day classics all, all season. Really, it just got strength in depth. Like Sean was saying, that there's something special going on in that team that they can motivate the riders. They clearly, and most importantly, they not just communicate before a race they have a plan but because they've got such depth and they clearly communicate they don't get it right all the time but generally speaking they communicate well on the road and they've got everything covered and and that's that's key communicating knowing your strengths and weaknesses and having the kind of strength on the road to make decisions on the fly you need people who are intelligent on the bikes as well as strong I don't know what you think yeah well no I mean I think it's also they're such a family oriented family orientated team I mean I saw them doing the recon during the week and they had Johan Museo out with them and Tom Boone and two ex-winners two Mm. ex-quickstep riders they kind of come back to the team and ride with them and you can imagine for the likes of Yves Lampart and that riding along with Museo and Tom Boonen and that and and them talking about certain sectors that they've won the race on etc it just gives that little bit extra bit of a lift really and um I think that's what Patrick does so well. And they ride with their head. If you look yeah. at Quickstep yeah. today, they were there. The first 100 kilometres, they had men who were in the front watching for the breakaways, not allowing too much of a big breakaway to get away, not allowing the riders, the other favourites, to get teammates into that breakaway. And then you do not see the likes of Philip Gilbert, Stebar, Lampard, we did not see a lot of him. You know, you do not see the nose. And that's what you've got to do. You do not put your nose in the wind for the first 100 130 kilometres and then appear when it's the moment mm. and they, you know, they ride intelligently when you look at AG2R today I don't know what they were trying to do you know, they, had, they were riding on the front there and we see you know, some of the riders Nelson was riding on the front Vandenberg he was pulling on the front 130 kilometres out what's he at? Like, who do they think they are? They just have to wait <laughs> and play the card and play the tactic. But, you know, I don't understand the tactic. And from the director of Sportive point yeah. of view as well, I don't understand why they don't say race radio. OK, guys, stop. 
just sit in the group and wait, and we wait until the race really starts. I think we have to mention last last year's winner as well, chaps, Peter Sagan, who mm-hmm. sort of seemed to run out of gas. He's at thirty k's out, and he's in that final shake-up. How did you see it, Brad? Well, he looked um, about fifty k out on Monson Pavel. You know, he, he looked like he was going to ride away with this like he did last year. I was thinking he was going to end up attacking on Monson Pavel, and he just seemed to sort of disintegrate from that point on. Really, either he did too much work on the front, either he was too confident, or he didn't eat enough from that point on. But I mean, it was pretty rapid once he did go. You know, it was quite an explosion, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know whether he's just in the right condition, but you know, clearly, if he wasn't in top form, he's still got that. You know, he's still one of those riders who liked bike racing. You know, mm. although he wasn't at one hundred percent, he just got himself in the right position and up to a point looked good. But then with thirty k to go, he completely capitulated. I think he. It's the nearest that I think I've seen recently with Sagan in particular that he actually we, we use the word bonk, but that doesn't actually happen very often. Mm. And it, I think he just blew. You could see he was almost seeing stars, and uh, but managed to hold on to fifth place. So still very respectable by anybody's standards. That's a good ride but by his own it's not so good but it's good to see him even though he's not on top form racing mm. I don't know what you think Sean but, yes uh, well I think he, he tried to bluff it a bit today when, you know, when we went into the uh, Monzon Pavel when it really got uh, serious and you know the real difficult part of the race with Gilbert attacking and then we see uh, Yves Lampard right in the front I think uh, Sagan was you know, starting to feel the uh, fatigue was setting in but he tried to play the card the very mid uh, Gilbert attacked immediately in the wheel but yeah, it was still a long ways out and he paid for those efforts and maybe I didn't uh, eat enough. But that is Paris-Roubaix. We see Niels Pollitt looked like he was in difficulty 25 kilometres out. He seemed to be losing contact with that breakaway of six. And then he turned around and, you know, was one of the stronger ones in the end. He found another gear. So the, he was the one that attacked and yeah. Gilbert went across to him on the penultimate set of Pava, you know. So. And it's all about getting the gels. I want to mention... Ilio Kesa as well, who hit a road sign. It looked like a, a yeah, hell of a smash up. Yeah. Um, so we understand that he's 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 okay. I mean, it looked quite nasty. But on that note, and particularly because you've joined us today, Sean, I wanted to talk about the worst injury that each of you has ridden on with. I was pretty lucky, actually. Yeah. I mean, I had a broken wrist. I rode at the World Championships. I rode the Team Pursuit final with a broken wrist in whenever it was 2001. That was probably the worst I ever had. Matt, the riding on bit that may be thinking because I've had broken a lot of bones. The Giro, um, no, 2000? I think it's got to be... I end up... Yeah, c- come off on a descent on stage two of the Giro yeah. um, after decking it previously the same day. Riders were off everywhere. It was so so slippy. But anyway, came off in this town on a, on a bend and uh, end up in the ambulance because I couldn't move my, both my knees. The way I'd come down, I'd slam the top tube on both knees. Eventually got out of the ambulance because it was my first Grand Tour and I thought it might, might be my last... So I got out and um, got on my bike, holding on the side of the car, and I couldn't actually pedal, so I had to use my hands to force my knees down to get pedalling again. And then I just soldiered on, basically. It was just like damage limitation every day. You know, you have a team meeting normally to look at how you win a stage, but for us, Sean Yates was saying, right, here's the, here's the profile. This is going to be roughly the time, so this is the time, you, this is the time cut. So our, my day in the mountains was basically making sure I finished in the time cut, bandaged up. Yeah, and I had a couple of steroid injections from the race doctor to keep me going, but it was, it was, it was grim. Sean, uh, you took the leader's jersey in the time trial on stage 18 of the World to Espana in 1987. Then what happened? Well, I had the, the problem. I had a boil on my bottom for a number of days before that time trial. Is it still there? <laughs> <laughs> no, thank God. And it was just getting more painful as, uh, as the days went on. And you know, when you're sitting on the saddle every day for four, four and a half hours, maybe five hours, uh, it doesn't get a chance you know, to heal. And uh, yeah, I went, to, uh, I went to the time trial and then took the, um, the race leader's jersey but uh, the following day it was just too painful to go on 
and I had to uh, abandon with the race leader's um, jersey on my uh, on my back. And yeah, that was a big disappointment because you know I had uh, had been fighting for uh, almost three weeks. We were getting to the end of the race, and um, you know I was pretty much in line to win it. But uh, having to go to the race like that, having to abandon it, was uh, not alone the boil being sore, but it was also yeah a sore one to have to leave the race. The first time I came to interview you uh, at the Tour of the Alps, I'd waited all afternoon because you'd been out on a recce. Yeah. And then I'd waited all evening and I just thought I wasn't going to get the interview. I was going to have to go home, tell my editor, no, sorry, I didn't get to speak to him. And you eventually walked in, still in your, your Lycra at like nine o'clock at night. And I was like, oh, he's, he's here. I'm, I'm actually going to be able to get this interview. And I was just so, I was so pleased you'd eventually turned up. Yeah. I went, oh, Brad, how are you? And you just looked at me, like, you know, proper death stare. And you went, I'm rough as Mate. No, I'd, I'd, I'd had a boil or something, and I think the doctor had had to lance it off, and I'd had these really strong antibiotics to kill off any infection pre-Giro, uh, and they just wiped me out completely, and we were doing the recon for the Giro at that time. But they gave you the interview, though, didn't I? You did, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, right, well, more to come on the Bradley Wiggins show right after this. In 2019, cycling fans across Europe will be able to watch over 30 UCI World Tour events live on Eurosport and Eurosport Player, available on the app and online via eurosport.co.uk. Eurosport Player also allows viewers to catch up and relive all the action on demand. Eurosport will bring fans unrivaled expertise and analysis from all the best moments of the 2019 season. Welcome back to the Bradley Wiggins Show by Eurosport in association with Lacquer. Chaps, the tour of the Basque Country then. Sean, a race you won three times in your career. This year was Astana's Ion Itzagire taking the GC ahead of Dan Martin, your countryman, of course, uh, and Bora Hansgrohe's Emmanuel Bookman in third. What have we learned, Sean, from this year's edition? Well, I suppose we've learned you can get horrible weather in Basque Country, <laughs> as we see in the race this year. It was just rain, rain uh, for the first number of days. And yeah, they never fail with these super steep ramps in the Basque Country. It was always there. Savage, remember, isn't it? It was it's savage stuff. And it's, they seem to be just finding more of them. But what a race it was. And, you know, Bora, uh, they had such a great race. And they looked so dominant, uh, you know, with Shackman in the beginning and then with uh, Bookman. Looked like they the race wrapped up, uh, you know, easily. And then the final stage, they seemed to lose control. I didn't really watch it all but uh, I was surprised when I heard Jan Izegri actually managed to uh, you know, knock him off the uh, leaderboard of the uh, race leadership and win the race. Well, Adam Yates took the final stage, finished in the top ten overall. He seems like he's in a good place, Brad. Yeah, we were talking about him the last few weeks, haven't we, with yeah. Catalonia and yeah. stuff and, you know, he's maybe peating out now and yeah. Simon's now going to take over the mantle as we go into the sort of Giro prep and, and, the, and the Giro itself but fifth in the Basque Country still and obviously another stage win to, to this win tally this season Maximilian Schackman Bora took three stages Matt we've been impressed with him so far this season he's built on his form from Catalonia yeah um, the lad's a motorbike I mean it, it's, it's incredible just that breakthrough stage win in the Giro last year opened a lot of people's eyes bit of a surprise move from quick step over to the German team that win the other week in Catalonia when he held off the bunch you know it looked like it was one of those game over things the bunch were closing and held the bunch off for 20k on his own insane it was very very talented bike rider then to win the, the opening time trial mm. being riders like Alaphilippe and then to win two road stages in pretty atrocious conditions just shows how versatile and how adaptable that young rider is he really is a talent but as Sean said Bookman then won another stage to four stage mm. wins went into the lead and then to lose it all in the final stage was four stage wins and three riders in the top 10 I don't know management might want to look at that one a little bit but uh, but again you know how consistent Astana have been I mean uh, mm. they've had, I think that might make the them 22 wins in total this year they're probably yeah. equal I think on, on quick step uh, there, there thereabouts but yeah um, he is 
is he is a real talent. He is a real talent. Shaq yeah. would be a dark horse for the tour. He just needs to learn to climb a bit better in the, in the high mountains. Mm. It was always a plan for Bookman to take over because they were a bit worried about the penultimate stage of the Basque Country because they had some really high mountains, well, some high high climbs, and he did capitulate on the high climbs. Maybe for, in the next couple of years, but not right now, I don't think. I just think he learns needs to learn to climb better in, in the high mountains, but he could be one to watch in the Ardennes, no doubt about it. Uh, another man who showed a glimpse of form, particularly on that opening individual time trial stage, was Garrett Thomas. Finished in the top 10. He subsequently crashed hard. That's his last race in Team Sky Colours. Is he showing the, the form that might win him the tour or make him a... Because he will go in as, a, as one of the favourites after last year. Well, I think he's struggling a bit. Um, you know, the races that he's taken part in, he doesn't seem to be at the level you would expect him to be. And I think not at the level that he would like to be at. But there's still you know, a bit of time to uh, to get that uh, for the tour. Um, but um, it's probably a little bit of concerning times for him because uh, he, he... And I think uh, he would prefer to be in a little bit better shape at this moment. But um, yeah, he just have to get continue on walking and keep the head down, as they say, and it should come around. Brad, put yourself in G's shoes right now. Well, he's normally quite good at coming back from setbacks. G, I mean, I remember he crashed out in the tour, uh, the Giro a few years ago and came back and won the prologue of the tour. And, but he's normally riding on quite high level of fitness, and so if something happens, he can then it doesn't take much to get back to to where he is. He keeps mm. himself in good shape all year. I think the difference this year is having won the tour, his life's been tipped upside down pretty much in the sense that he's now famous, he's now one of the favourites for the tour this year. And so everything he does is observed and we're always watching and everyone's watching and everything is questioned. You know, And I think that's what he's facing at the moment. So he can't go under the radar anymore. He'll start the tour as number one and one of the favourites. So we'll be watching him in the first week, whereas last year it was all about Froome and watching Froome and Froome's build-up. He hasn't got that this year where he can just go under the radar. Mm. You know, Everything's been analysed and watched and that adds a different pressure to it as, as the tour winner. And I think this off-season as well probably has been different because the tour winner, a lot more demands on him. Um, maybe that has taken a bit of effect as well on his fitness level in the early part of the season. On the Grand Tours then, the first one of the season is less than a month away, the Giro d'Italia. Saturday, May the 11th, it begins in Bologna. This year's route features seven summit finishes, three individual time trials. Maybe a route that would have suited you, Brad, with the, the three ITTs. Uh, yeah, I mean, you've still got to get up the climbs, but I mean, obviously that you would think would favour Dumoulin again going into it. Simon Yates has made no secret of his desire to try and rectify what happened last year. He's worked on his time trial and he's obviously won the time trial in Paris-Nice this year, so he seems to be you know, on track for that. Plus his form is ideal, you know, so we spoke about it the last few weeks and just how perfect he seems to be and position he seems to be in. Mm. So it's all, it's all lining up well, but obviously you've got Bernal as well, fresh off his Paris-Nice win. You know, he's an immense talent that I'm sure will win the Giro one day, whether it's too soon to win the Giro this year, it might be a, a bit too much to expect three weeks out of him. But it's going to line up to be a fantastic race and the Giro, you know, the weather comes with, with the Giro in May and, you know, snow... I mean, we see the, the the changes last year. Who'd have thought with a week to go last year that Chris Froome would have won it? Yeah. So it's probably a better race to watch than the Tour. It's a, a stacked field, as we said. So I'm going to ask each of you now to pick for the. We'll start with the Giro, a winner and a dark horse, if you will. Well, I'm going to go Simon Yates to win with the dark horse of Bernal. Nice, Matt. Well, I'm going to go Bernal to win. With the Moulin, my cheeky side bet. Moulin, a dark horse. The, we're not the dark lightest horse. of dark horses. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I want to say dark horse. I mean, Sam Tom, well or Tom? Running. Uh, it's going to be Tom, not yeah. Oh, Sam. Sam's definitely a dark horse if, if he, if he yeah, turns yeah. up. <laughs> Sean? Well, the little bit of uh, stage racing that we've seen, notably Paris-Nice, Bernal was very impressive. But as Brad said, the weather conditions that can change 
everything in each year because you can have such horrible conditions and you can have such great conditions like we had last year you know it was just fabulous weather right through mm. um, but uh, at the moment my pick would be Bernal and your dark horse Tom Dumoulin all right, two very, very light dark horses in there. Great minds. Um, Brad, I want to talk about Big Tom, because you mentioned him last mm. week. And it, so he's switched his focus from the Tour de France to the Giro. It's a race that he's won before. It's a course, as we mentioned, with the three time trials that obviously suits him. Is the decision to switch from focusing on the Tour to focusing on the Giro something you agree with? I mean, because he's, he's, he's going to have a go at both this year as well. Yeah, I mean, he had a bo- go at both last year, didn't he? Yeah. I was surprised to see him as good in the Tour last year as he was. You know, it was incredible. It's two podium finishes in two Grand Tours last year. He's an amazing athlete, really. And I, I'm surprised he's not gone and had one year where he's just focused on the Tour because yeah. he's built for the Tour. And it's amazing he does what he does at the Giro, considering how tough it is and what he's, the type of people he's got to go up against in Simon Yates, etc. Um, whereas the Tour, you know, the likes of Geraint won the Tour. Tom's a similar rider to Geraint. You know, the climbs suit him better. They're not as steep as the Giro. So, yeah, it is a surprise. I'm not too sure what his motivation for it is. Having already won the Giro, you'd think he'd be branching out to try and win a Tour de France. Or whether he thinks he's got more opportunities at the Giro because Sky have been so dominant when they get into the mountains of the Tour. Give us your favourite, then, for the Tour. Chris Rohn. Matt. I'm going to go. I said this... A couple of weeks ago uh, on the podcast, uh, Froome. I know he hasn't had an free, ideal running, but he can just turn it around, I think, and he's got that much experience. I think he's going to be hard to beat. I really do. You got a dark horse for us? G. Go right. I think Froome as well said it. I think he's going to got this will be his fifth tour. And my dark horse is someone who's had been in with a shout for the last few years. If he can stay upright, and it's probably his last chance to maybe win the tour, is Richie Port because he is running out of time rapidly now. <laughs> So he can't seem to stay well. Can't seem to. Well, I mean, if we see him in the form he showed in the Dauphiné two years ago and in the Tour of Swiss last year, particularly on the climbs, Mm. it'd be nice to see that Richie Port. We know he's capable of it. It's just getting him to that point upright. It's been the biggest challenge. Staying on his bike. He's yeah. always talked about as a challenger, as, as sort of, you know. But he must be, is he 36 now? 30, approaching 37, maybe? I think he might be young, but he's about yeah. 34, I think. But he said so, his, yeah. his, his years are numbered in terms of challenging for a Grand Tour, mm. definitely. And it's where the Trek have the firepower to support him yeah. at, at Tour. Again, again, this is always going to be the biggest challenge for a lot of these teams is, you know, can any of them challenge Sky in terms of horsepower? What about the Vuelta, Sean? I mean, it's a long way away at this point. Anything can happen. As we know, it's the, the guys who tend to go for the Vuelta are the guys who maybe don't do so well at the Tour. And it's it's sort of their chance to, to get back what they could have won almost. Yes, well, all the Grand Tours are a long ways off. Even the Giro is a long way because now we're in we're in classic mode and we we're thinking about the Copper Classics and the Ardennes Classics. So it's, it is early days to start mm. talking about the Giro or the, or the Tour. Um, Vuelta... My God, it's uh, it's it's a long, long, uh, long way off. We don't even know who's going to be riding. Um, yeah, I don't know. Quintana is the one who always seems to get it, uh, get it together for the um, for the Vuelta, but he's also focusing on the uh, Tour of France this year, mm-hmm. I believe. So, yeah, depending on what way he performs in the Tour, but yeah, for me, if uh, if a Quintana focuses a bit on a Vuelta, I think he's a, he's a rider that you know can do that. He's proven already. Can we see one of the, the main men for the Giro? bookend their year so can we see someone doing well at the Giro and then following up by uh, sort of resting yeah. over the Tour de France and like perhaps Yates. coming back like Yates. definitely Yates. Yeah. 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 Simon Yates mm-hmm. um, yeah. I kind of think if things stay the way they are and everything Froome does win a fifth Tour G doesn't really get back to the form he was at for the Tour last year 
we could see G go into the Volta and yeah, maybe try and add the Volta mm-hmm. title to his. Bearing in mind the World Championships are in Britain straight after that, and it's an opportunity for him to perform or maybe win a World Road title because that's certainly something G could do on a course like that in mm-hmm. Leeds and carry that. And with an outside bet, the oldest man in the world, Alejandro Valverde, <laughs> for the Volta. <laughs> At 49, by then he'll be. He could, you know, as world champion at the Walter, he could, you know, he nearly won it last year. Did I say nearly won it? He was certainly up there with a couple of days to go. He's always up there, yeah. Um, well, we want to know who you think will win the three grand tours this year. Please do send us your predictions to uh, Twitter at Eurosport underscore UK. Listeners, it's time to tell you a bit more about our sponsor, Lacquer. Lacquer is a smarter way of insuring your bike and your gear. It's a community of cyclists joining together to save each other money. Lacquer covers all the basics like theft and accidental loss and damage, both at home and abroad. It'll also cover you in sportives and competition races, so long as you're not riding in the pro peloton. How does Lacquer work, you ask? Well, instead of charging you a fixed premium, with Lacquer you only pay a small share of the community's claims cost, and your share is proportionate to how much you insure. Lacquer locks in a maximum price cap to make sure there are no nasty surprises, even in months with lots of claims amongst the community. And when there are no claims that month, you could even pay nothing at all. Rest assured, claims are accepted fast, usually within 24 hours. On average, Lacquer's members have saved 61% on bike insurance. So why don't you investigate the benefits for yourself? Find out more at lacquer.co.uk and enter the promo code WIGGINS to get £10 off. That's laka.co.uk and the promo code WIGGINS. Now, Lotto Soudal's Belgian time trial specialist, Victor Campenatz, is set to take on the hour record this week. The current record is, of course, 54.526 kilometres, set by you, Brad, in 2015. Uh, that's what he has to beat in Aguas Calientes, Mexico, when he goes on either Tuesday or Wednesday. Whatever happens, I'll still have the sea level world record, won't I? I'll be like See, Tyson Fury with this linear world can't title. Be beaten. <laughs> you end up with. Um, you think he's going to do well, it, though, I th- don't you? I think if he starts, he'll do it, because you don't start the hour record unless you know you're going to do it, because it's so quantifiable. Mm. You know, the first thing you do is you go and ride 10, 15, 20 minutes at pace and see what it feels like. If that feels all right, you try and do a half an hour trial, maybe a 45-minute trial. He's been working on this for a long, long time with a good team of people around him. He's not gone all the way out there to start it and fail. You know, there is no second place. You either do it or you fail in an hour record. So if he starts, they'll be confident that he's going to break it. Um, And when I was speaking to him back in December, they'd already done 30 minutes at pace and felt comfortable. So I think he'll break it. Um, As I've said a few times now, I think it'd be good for the sport. It'd be good for the record. We're coming up to nearly four years this year that I've had it. And you don't want it to lie dormant for too long like Chris Borman's did. You know, we want the sport to progress and move Mm. along and new people to establish records for other people to then come along and break it. So, you know, good luck to him. And um, I'm sure if he starts it, he'll break it. Well, he'll be the seventh man to give it a crack since you set the record. So we'll keep our powder dry on that for now and and all going where we should hopefully hear from Victor on next week's show. Uh, But before we come to that, to set the scene for us, I spoke to a rider who has gone to the same velodrome in Aguas Calientes uh, and been successful in breaking the UCI hour record, Italian cyclist Vittoria Busi. She took the women's record in September last year. Uh, I began by asking her about why she took the record on in the first place. I come from actually another sport, which is um, track and field athletics. I was a runner. Um, so changing to another sport was really difficult because I, I started cycling at 27 years old. And so I missed all the technicalities to handle the bike properly. So when I started riding a bunch of people, it was really scary. So I couldn't find my way at the beginning. 
uh, in cycling. And then um, I love time trial because they were very similar uh, to running. Uh, so when, when people said to me, okay, maybe it's good for you the hour because you don't have to, to change the gear, you don't have to worry about descending, cornering, uh, stay in the peloton, I just like start to to google it and uh, read the story and uh, was so such an epic story so fascinating that i i decided to start training for that you've said that brad was a big inspiration for you for the hour record was was he the only inspiration or were there other factors that really pushed you on to do it uh, well yes it, it was really inspiring for me uh, because i i really like uh, look at, at him like uh, the, the position and uh, the the way he, he, he rode on the track, uh, so I was like really studying uh, carefully everything uh, that I could see from the from the video uh, on the web. And um, yes, but um, I think also you need some kind of uh, inspiration which is uh, out of sport, so an an inspiration that you can find from your real life. So outside cycling, and then for me in particular was when I when I lost my father. Um, that was my my main motivation to to do something big in my life and live for two people, for me and my father. And and also like when I was doing athletics, it was like really close to me. And so uh, coming back to sport, uh, an agonistic level was like a a way to uh, come back close to him. Was it difficult to find the motivation to go again? Because you had two cracks at your hour record, didn't you? You rode for 44 minutes um, on the, the first time in, in Aguas Calientes. And then you came back less than 48 hours later to have another go, got back on the bike and, and obviously this time rode for the whole hour uh, and took the record. Yeah, it was like two very long days because I was really unlucky the first day uh, because, uh, as we said before, it's, uh, it's very scientific, the, the hour. So you need to calculate the air density. And uh, especially in, in altitude, air density uh, changed a lot. And uh, that day, there was like a, a kind of uh, heavy rain, uh, no sun. Uh, so the velodrome was really cold. And so th- there was no more the, the advantage of a thin uh, air density, a lower density. And then at some point the sun uh, came out, um, so I decided to have a go, uh, but I wasn't mentally prepared for that because at the beginning uh, I decided to do the, the, the day after, and then suddenly I changed my mind and uh, everything happened too fast and I really wasn't prepared for that. So I was like, Almost on pace, uh, but to break the hour was not enough. Uh, so I, I just couldn't go a little bit um, stronger uh, because I don't, I didn't have the enough uh, motivation that day. And so after 40 minutes, I decided to stop. What's your memory, uh, Vittoria, of, of riding yeah. of riding the hour? What's your memory of actually being on the track? Actually, you think about everything except cycling because if you if you think that you are pedaling uh, like at uh, 48k per hour in uh, in the velodrome you need to do like almost 200 laps is like it's too much so your mind uh, cannot support that so you just think about your thoughts and um, I I just remember the uh, the voice of of my boyfriend was shouting to me the lap time the loud music because I prepared like a playlist of music 
like dancing music uh, and uh, was really loud in the velodrome. So I just remember the music, the voice of my boyfriend, the sensation of uh, pain at the leg, uh, at the neck and uh, pain everywhere, actually. So that was my sensation. And uh, and also, obviously, the, the last minute was, was really emotional because I understood that I was breaking a world record. So it was really, uh, wow, exciting. So Victor Campanats, the Lotto Sudal rider, is going to have, he's, he's the next person who's going to have a crack at the hour record um, on either Tuesday or Wednesday this week. It will be in the same velodrome in Aguas Calientes as you broke your hour record. Do you have any advice for Victor? What would, what's the one piece of advice you might give him before he, before he gives it a crack? The main thing for me was try to start not too fast. So because at the beginning you want just you feel easy at the beginning. So the, the first 10 minutes, 15 minutes, you want just to go. So the thing is start regular, as regular as possible. And uh, really from the first lap. So don't push too hard, even on the first lap. I mean, it's, it's difficult because uh, you're excited. Uh, you're going to try to break a record. So uh, you just want to push. And uh, so the main thing is go, have the sensation to go slow at the beginning sure don't go out too hot um victoria having fallen in love as you say with the hour record if someone else were now to go and beat your record do you think that you would go back to it yeah actually i'm thinking about trying to break my own record again because uh, as i said i just fall in love with the hour is the, the the best effort um so i'm i can think about going back to to the hour in uh maybe next year. You've got an impressive sort of track record of, of learning to deal with, with pain or, or teaching yourself to, to deal with pain and push through that pain barrier. And, and you said that finding a reason for doing the hour record beyond yourself has helped you to do that and helped you to, to push through what you previously might have thought your limits were. Um, t- tell us about your relationship with, with pain or the perception of pain and how you deal with it. I remember there was like an evolution in my in my relation with pain because at the beginning when you start training for something so so big so far from your limit at some point you feel pain and when you feel pain like your mind want to protect your body so even if your body has more to do your mind say to you okay let's quit because it's too hard it's hard not just physically but also like emotionally because it's like when you do something big sometimes you want to uh, don't get embarrassed if you fail so it's kind of protection from your brain and uh, so I remember that sensation okay my mind is telling me let's quit as fast as possible and at the beginning I was like listening my mind and I was scared oh my god the pain is going to arrive uh, what I'm going to do if the pain arrive I have to stay with the pain for so long so I was scared about pain and then I changed my my point of view and I said okay I'm I'm preparing a world record so it's it's normal that I, I will feel pain and it's good if I feel pain because it means that I'm going through my limits so I was like searching for pain actually it's slightly a change of of uh, point of view uh, but it really changed uh, your relation with pain because you are searching for him. Uh, it's not him that come to you and you're scared. And then when he come and I find the pain, I stay in the pain. Uh, and that's the thing that 
make you feel like alive because you start to investigate in yourself. You start to speak with your brain. When your brain say, let's quit, you can reply, no, because uh, we, we are uh, like trying to break a record. And so it's normal. Uh, don't, 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 don't be scared of pain. And on that note, Vittoria, you've got a, a question for Brad, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like wondering uh, how uh, Bradley's relation with pain evolved in uh, in his career. Like for me, for my small career in uh, in three years, more or less, I changed a lot my relation with pain, which is like in the hour is the maximum expression of pain. So I just was curious to know from the beginning how he deal with pain, how the hour changed his relation with pain, and uh, if he has some, um, if he had some kind of motivation beyond uh, himself that uh, enable him to to push through the limits. You're listening to the Bradley Wiggins Show from Eurosport. So Brad, we know that you were more comfortable than most in that TT position. Victoria there talks about pushing through the pain. And you know, no matter how comfortable you are in that position, I think you've still got to be able to push through that pain barrier. So this, this one comes in two parts, really. How, how did you manage to push through the, the pain for that hour record success? And as Victoria says there, did you have one particular thing driving you? Yeah, I think they both merged into one for me, really. Yeah. And it was fear of failure overriding factor was fear and shame really you know a velodrome full of people 1.1 million people watching on sky you'd built your career up to that point and you've you know six months out i announced i was going to do it on the 6th of june at 6 30 in the evening and people have paid their hard-earned money to come and watch you and so the only thing that was really was the fear of failure you've got one hour mm. you know and with every five ten minutes that went by you know it was just right you've got 40 minutes left brad right you're halfway through now that's 30 minutes to go that's 25 minutes. In 20 minutes' time, it's all done, and you're going to break the record, and everyone's going to go, oh, I'm happy, and it's going to be relief, and you can go and have a drink. 10 minutes to go, 15 minutes to go, 10 minutes to go, 8 minutes to go, 7 minutes. That was the only thing. You can't stop now because you're going to look like a right tit, you know? And, and that's it. That's the only thing driving you. It's the most painful thing in the world, 7 minutes to go. Well, you can't stop. You've got to see it out. 7 minutes, the last thing you ever do on a bike ever again. 7 minutes, 5 minutes to go. Well, you're there now. You've done it. You've done 55 minutes, Brad. Just focus on your line. And that was it. Just fear of failure and sending everyone home happy. The expectation that you'd set yourself up to. That's why we did it in London. Mm. We could have done it behind closed doors in, in altitude and gone and established, you know, the record beyond, you know, or not set a date, you know, like Victor's done. But we announced it six months out, sold tickets. It was about the public. It was about putting on an exhibition in the London Velodrome on the site of the Lee Valley Cycle Circuit where I started cycling in Eastway. And, and it, was a, it was a commercial thing and a brand thing. And, you know, we did it on that day and, and it was what it was. Do you learn to push through the pain? Is that something that comes over your career? Well, I think when you're in good shape and you've trained for something specifically, I always found like the Olympics and things that the pain is quite a sweet pain. The pain is quite different to suffering. Mm. When you're suffering, I always associate that with you're not up to the task you know, you, you haven't got the legs to, to be doing, so you suffer, and it's a horrible pain because you're hanging on. But when you're in good shape and you're the one dishing it out, you, you're hurting just as much, the lactate's the same, but you're just travelling faster than everyone else, and that gives you an adrenaline rush when it happens. So that, that suffering becomes a sweet pain. Mm. It's an enjoyable pain that you want to turn it up more, turn the screw even harder. But when someone's turning the screw on you, you're suffering. That's how I've always viewed the two. Mm. When the form is good, it's a sweet pain. When it's bad, you suffer. 
Sean, how did you deal with it? Because of the boil on the bottom aside. Well, as Brad said, you prepare and you put in the work. And uh, when you're doing uh, the old record, of course, you know, you have your times, your split times, and you know what you know what you have to write at. And you have been doing uh, your training sessions, and you know you can you can do it. So you know the confidence is there first. And when the groundwork, the foundation work, the preparation is done, then you know you can do it. And of course, you know the confidence. When you're up on time, when you're up, when you're on schedule, then you know you can push yourself that much more. It's a different sort of pain. Mm. It's like in the classic races, or like in a stage race in the mountains. If you're on the front and you're in the front group there, and you know you're sitting there, and you can hear on race radio this rider lache, 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 and you're sitting comfortable there, then you know you get that boost. Although you are suffering, it's a different sort of suffering. It's a different sort of pain. And if you're riding on the front, of course. You know, you're dishing out the pain, as they say in cycling, and uh, you know then that feeling is totally is totally different. But if you're hanging on the rear of a group and you're trying to stay there and you lose three or four bike lengths, that pain is is totally different. It's a real killer. Um, it's a mental torture. It's a mental, yes, yeah. yes. It's a mental torture yeah. more. Is that you ever get that feeling of well, if I'm hurting and I'm on the front, then you know fine well that the guy's in just behind you. Well, uh, sometimes, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I always find when you're climbing. That's the best time because you go around a hairpin and everyone does it when in the front of the group. They look back down one hairpin and you can normally see the guys that look up. You could just see the, the, the desperation and yeah. they're just off the back a little bit. And that's when you just accelerate out the hairpin a little bit more and put them. And, and they're the best places to be, aren't they? Yeah, you, you, you can actually, I used to, again, I'm not the same level as, as the guys either side of me today, but my success, you know, when I was going good, it was very, you know, it, I used to train exceptionally hard. My kind of psychology was just, I need to learn how to suffer. So when I was in races, a lot of the time, I was just rolling through and breaks and stuff, you know, and, and, and just knew how to suffer. Yeah. Um, but, but when you're dishing it out, you actually start to, you feed off other people's suffering. You look around, like Brad just said, you look around, you see them suffering behind and somehow you find even more. And there's a weird, although I'm a pretty laid back, okay kind of guy, there's a perverse pleasure you get from seeing other riders suffer and you can really dish it out. And, that, mm. and you, you can, you can get an adrenaline from, it kind of sounds quite sadistic, but a, you, know, you can feed off the suffering of other riders. And um, it's a special place to be. You know, it's a rare, it's a rarefied atmosphere. When you're riding at that kind of level, you can't actually seemingly find a limit of kind of hurting yourself. It's, it's really mm. kind of strange. You're just kind of pedaling and pushing and pushing and pushing, but you're able to give more. It is strange, isn't it? But then when the boot's on the other mm. foot, it's, it's a horrible experience. You could be putting out the same power, but when, when, the, when, when you're the one dishing it out, it's very different to when you're the one receiving it. I want to go back to <laughs> briefly get back, uh, back to Sagan today because his face told a story when he's, he's trying to hang, hang it on, hanging on to Gilbert. Uh, and you can see them going up the road, and you can just see that he's running out of gas slowly, slowly. Yeah, his his face was something that I call the face faces of cycling. And when you've been riding for a while, and all these guys will know each other, and when you're a commentator, you know when riders are suffering. You start to look at, you know, body language. You know, you know the guys are riding strongly. You look at that. You understand how riders pedal in different given situations. You just learn this, and it doesn't take. And you know when riders are suffering. And Peter Sagan had this kind of. It wasn't really a full-on grimace like he was given it. It's just they had nothing left. And it was like a, you know, there's a little bit of sadness about it. It was just, just had nothing left. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and riders, some riders can, can hide that, but there was no hiding that. He, he, was, he was a man that was spent, you know, at that, mm-hmm. that particular point. So take it briefly back to the classics then before we go, because we talked last week about our cycling dream team. You know, if we were a DS, who would we have in as our ultimate rider for the sprints, for the climbs, for the, for the GC man, uh, for the overall? We've had a ton of responses on social media. Last Largely, or a lot of the time, to pick up some of the riders that we didn't mention. 
Fabian Cancellara was, was one, one man who got in touch uh, and said, what about TT and classic hunters? Well, we had a, we had a descender, didn't we, on we our did. list last we... year, which we never got to. And I had Fabian on my list because I know he, he flagged it up on my on my social this week, and what about Insta, me yeah. in your talk? And I actually would, I did have Fabian in. So and that's my Fabian, fault. if you're we, listening. We, we, we skipped past it. Um, yeah. So who would you, you'd have had I well, I'd have had descender? Yeah, or TT for sure. Yes. Um, and my classics, without doubt, would have been Johan Rousseau or Sean. <laughs> Present company excluded. Uh, classics man, Sean, who would you pick if you were... Uh, a DS, and you could pick your all-time classics, man. Put him on the spot again. Matt, we might have to go to you Tom Boner, yeah. Matt? I could go... Again, I'm, I'm not allowed to pick anybody in a room, am I? Because uh, it, would, it would be Sean. But uh, I, someone like, like Merckx, yeah. you know, when you look at how devastatingly strong he was, he won everything, didn't he? Uh, of, of, of the modern era, I guess, I mean, it had to be Gilbert now, really, you know, yeah. because, you know, winning that, it sets him on another level. It was... You know, world champion with one Amstel as well. You know, there's not out. many as there that have no. won. Obviously, you know, no. Sean knows. You know, there's not many that have won Lombardy, Flanders, Roubaix. You know, and, and a world title. And a world title. He's just got Milan San Remo to win, and he's that got the yeah. some bite right. Because Sean, you won all four. Well, four didn't four you? Out missing out on Flanders. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Gilbert's won Newsblood a couple of times. Yeah, did he? Has he won Flesh Wallon as well? Sure, he's won Flesh Wallon. Oh, I mean, he's he he's, he's won some climbing races and those races I eat, like Roubaix and that. That's, that takes some all-round bike riders to do well, that. Well, it's a very broad one if you look yeah. at the classics and, you know, you look at the cobble classics and you look at the Ardennes classics, you know, they're totally two different sort of animals, really, and mm. there's not a lot of riders can do both. But uh, if you just, you know, look at it from a classic point of view and the way they ride the race and, yeah... You know, if you, you can, you know, uh, you could be talking here for you know many hours about the, uh, the riders, but you have a sort of a favourite rider that you like the way he rides, and that, and for that reason, you know, I would, uh, Tom Bourne would be a rider that. Yes, I would say for the classics, he'd be my pick. Well, that's about it for this episode of the Bradley Wiggins Show by Eurosport. Thanks to our sponsor, Lacker Bicycle Insurance, powered by the community. We'll be back next Monday. Until then, you can stay up to date with Brad on his Twitter and Instagram, Brad at. So we go. Uh, you can follow Eurosport on Twitter and Instagram at Eurosport underscore UK and you can find us on Facebook plus if you've enjoyed the show please do subscribe share rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice uh, you can keep up to date with Matt at at Real Stevens Real Stevens the one and only uh, Sean will be back on the home of cycling when can we hear you next Sean next Sunday I'm still going for the gold race superb uh, for now thank you to Sean thank you to Matt Apologies to our other guest, Kenny Van Vlamink. We've run out of time today, Kenny. Nah, it's not normal. I, I, I uh, need to speak to the top guy because this is not acceptable. I come here for 15 euros. I, I need to talk to uh, Swiggins. Also to the Kelly guy. Yeah, it's a big problem. <laughs> yeah, it's not normal. Kenny, apologies. Ah, yeah, it's a big problem. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about it afterwards. Uh, Brad, thanks for your time. Enjoy your last few days, possibly as the hour record yeah, holder. I'm just flying out to Colombia now to throw a load of drawing pins down there. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, maybe do Mexico as well. I might do a bit of streaking <laughs> to disrupt the hour record. We won't get, I wonder if we'll get a streak at the hour record. Uh, no. We might do now. I think Kenny's flying out, apparently. He's just left. Is he? He's, yeah. he's gone. Uh, finally, from me, Graham. Well, Gus, it's goodbye. We'll see you next week for a look back at the Amstel Gold Race. The Bradley Wiggins Show is a Muddy Knees Media production for Eurosport. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.